In December of 1952, a toxic mix of dense fog and sooty black coal smoke killed thousands of Londoners, Londoners in four days. It remained the deadliest environmental episode in recorded history. That is a real picture of what London looked like during that time. Here's what happened. As the smoke coming out of London's chimneys mixed with natural fog, the air turned colder. In order to help this situation, Londoners then heaped more coal on their fires and therefore made more smoke. Soon, it was so dark, some said that they couldn't even see their feet. By Sunday, December 7th, visibility fell to one foot. Roads were littered with abandoned cars. cars. Midday concerts were canceled due to utter darkness. Archivists at the British Museum found smog actually lurking in their book stacks. Cattle in the city's Smithfield Market were killed and thrown away before they could be slaughtered and sold because their lungs were completely black. Funeral director Stan Cribb of T. Cribb and Sons has led thousands of funeral trains through the smoggy streets of London, but he says the 1952 event dwarfs them all. He remembers the moment that he saw the first gray wisps coming through the air. It was a swirling like someone had set a load of car tires on fire. Folks, London's killer fog, the darkness that London found itself in, is a metaphor for the spiritual darkness that is all around us in our world today. It is a thick darkness, and it is a darkness that kills. I don't think I need to stand up here and give you examples of that darkness around us, do I? As a matter of fact, this past week we know what has happened. Again, another example of the darkness that this world finds itself in. However, this darkness is not created by chimneys or smokestacks. It's created by the people who live in this world. The darkness is us. The darkness is in our own hearts. And it is into this darkness that Jesus Christ enters into. And one of our problems that we have in this world today is we try to fix the darkness ourselves. And just like those Londoners, as they heaped burning coals to get out of the cold, we only make the matter worse. There is only one solution to the darkness that we find ourselves in, and his name is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the true light of this world, and the only light that can dispel the darkness that is found in each one of us. The passage that we're going to be looking at today, we're going to be looking at this true light, and we're going to be looking at the responses to this true light, really three responses, beginning with the 
response of those who believe in this light, our response, those of us who sit here today. So starting in verses 6 through 8, the first response that I see here in this passage is we testify to the light, verses 6 through 8. There came a man sent from God, whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light, so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. During the 2008 presidential race, John McCain was asked by Time magazine to share his personal journey of faith. In his article, McCain shared a powerful story of something that occurred while he was a prisoner of war. He said, when I was a prisoner of war in Vietnam, my captors tied my arms behind my back and then would loop a rope around my neck and ankles so that my head was pulled between my knees. He said, I was often left like that throughout the night. One night, a guard came into my cell. He didn't say words. Matter of fact, he put his finger to his lips, signaling for me to be quiet. As he did this, he then began to loosen the ropes from my neck and from my ankles, relieving all of my pain. The next morning, when his shift ended, the guard returned and retightened the ropes again, never saying a word. He said, a month or month or so later, on Christmas Day, I was standing in the dirt courtyard, and I saw the same guard approach me. He came up, stood silently next to me, not saying a word, began to draw something with his foot in the dirt. What he drew was a cross. He said, as, we, as I stood there, silently, looking at that cross, I remembered the true light of Christmas, even in the deep darkness of that Vietnamese prison camp. It's interesting. One of the darkest corners of the world, and the reason that John McCain was there was because of the darkness in this world, war and violence and killing. One of the deepest, darkest corners of the world in a prisoner of war camp, God did not leave himself without a witness, did he? And who knows if that Vietnamese guard thought that just because John McCain was an American, he was a Christian, I'm not sure if he knew that. But without saying a single word, that guard did what each and every single one of us can do. He pointed to the light of the world, Jesus Christ. And folks, one of the main reasons I chose this gospel is to reinvigorate our witness to that light. This world is a dark place. And it needs you and I to testify 
to the answer to that darkness. John begins here by talking about the ministry of John the Baptist, and it's somewhat of a chronological order because John the Baptist was a forerunner to Jesus Christ. And just as John the Baptist was a forerunner to Jesus Christ, and he prepared people to receive Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, you and I kind of follow after Jesus Christ, do we not? So John points forward to Jesus Christ, and you and I can point backwards to Jesus Christ, but it is the same light that we point to, and the message that John has hasn't changed. Repent and believe. I love the opening statement here. Listen to how simplistic that this is. There came a man sent from who? From God. What was his name? His name was John. What was his priority in life? To witness to the light of Jesus Christ, to testify to Jesus Christ. How many people have priorities here in life? You got some priority? No one? Okay, good. Well, enjoy. <laughs> we got lots of priorities, don't we? And sometimes all of those priorities take what? Priority. And they take over everything in our life. And here's what I am not saying for you to do. I don't want some of the guys going home to their wives or to their friends later on being like, Pastor Mark told me to sell everything I have, buy some camel hair, eat some locusts, and go out to the desert of Maine and preach that Jesus Christ is the answer. As cool as that would be, it's probably not going to be pretty effective because I don't think many people are going to be there. But that's not what I am saying here. But what I am saying is that the same thing, even though John had a very, very particular and very, very special calling on his life, we can follow in that example. John's priority in life was to testify to Jesus Christ, to witness to who he was and what he can do for and I, or what he can do for other people. The goal of his testimony so that, was peop so that people could believe through him. He was a vessel used by God. The same God that called John the Baptist to that ministry and empowered him to do it, is that the same God that you and I serve? Absolutely. Can he use you and I just like he used that prison guard in Vietnam to testify to Jesus Christ? Absolutely. John's priority was to testify. And even though we have other priorities in life, you know, when Jesus commissions his disciples and he says, go into all the nations and make disciples, baptizing them and teaching them. In that Oh, that idea is going is really as you go. So as you walk through this world, whatever it is you're doing, whether you're at school, whether you're at work, whether you're enjoying your hobby, whether you're on vacation, whether you're visiting your family, as you go, you can do what? Make disciples. And you can testify to what Jesus Christ has done in your life. You hold out your hand and you point to that light. His whole goal was that people might believe through him. He was a vessel used by God. Now, I want us to look at John's ministry. And I'm pretty sure if I were to go online, you know, I look up ministry ideas and stuff like that, how to outreach to people, outreach ideas. 
I'm pretty sure if you go online and you look up three successful things to ministry, you're not going to see that you need to go out to the desert, eat locusts, wear camel hair, and preach the gospel. That's not going to be there. But what is the most important thing is not the what of the ministry, it is the who of the ministry. It is the who behind the testimony, and the who is God. He was sent by God, he was called by God, and God empowered that witness that John gave in that testimony for people to receive the light. When we think of the word witness, we automatically think of a court of law, and really that is the general idea here that he is talking about. It is to provide a true testimony to a certain person or an event, right? So you're telling people the, the, the makeup of our testimony is you're saying, hey, this is where I was, this is what happened, and then I met Jesus Christ, and this is what he has done for me. When I was first saved, I could not in great theological terms explain to you what happened to me. However, that didn't stop me from trying. As a matter of fact, I probably should have stopped at certain points, especially when people started yelling at me. Uh, but for some reason, I, that's all I want to do. You remember when we were first saved and you had that, just that revelation and everything was like, oh, this is, hey, what's your problem? Jesus is the answer. And you just go around telling everyone, Jesus is the answer. And they thought you were absolutely crazy. But when, sometimes I think we overcomplicate witnessing and I think we overcomplicate evangelism. The goal is to testify what Jesus Christ has done in our life. And I remember when I would tell people about what happened because I made a, a, you know, a turn from heading in one direction, repenting and turning and heading in a completely different direction. When I would explain it to people, I used terminology like this. All I could tell people was like, look, I don't know what happened, but for 24 years of my life, I lived in an utter fog. I thought I knew what was real. I thought I knew who I was, and I thought I knew where I was going. But then someone told me what Jesus did for me. When I believed, that fog lifted. That's all I can say. That's all I knew what happened. Throughout this gospel, you're going to see people affected by the light and basically, then when one guy is healed, he's like, look, I'm just telling you, I was blind and now I can see and he's responsible for it. Jesus did it. I love that picture of that little girl in the testimony. There she is. And, and that's, all, that's all it is, right? And the gospel has some particulars that we have to get across. Absolutely. But a testimony and a witness is, is someone who speaks of a person or an event and what has happened in their life. And just because, sometimes I think what happens is we tend to make a big deal out of those individuals who have those grandiose testimonies. You know, guys who are like belonging to 85 gangs and wanted in 24 states and then all of a sudden they're like yeah now I believe in Jesus and we're like oh that makes it so much more believable and then you have people who are like well I was raised in a Christian family and I believed at the age of five and they're like ah oh, that's such a little boring testimony why don't you stay right over there folks that is not what it is about John was Actually, his goal was to point away from himself. And I really like 
what John Stott says about testimonies. He says, so much of our so-called testimonies today is really an autobiography and even sometimes thinly disguised self-advertisement. And sometimes those mega testimonies, right, are really drawing attention to who? The person. Folks, it doesn't matter how Jesus saved you or what he saved you out of, whether it was gangs or whether it was just your family. We all have dark hearts. The miracle is that he saved any single one of us. We have all come from the same place. The goal is not to draw attention to myself. The goal is to draw attention to him. And I think what happens in Christianity sometimes, we look at people who are really good lights in this world, and we hold them up. We look at those individuals who can really talk evangelism to people who really know all the answers and can answer all the questions and we put all of our stock in them and instead of pointing people to Jesus we point people to individuals they're sinners just like you and I my testimony your testimony it's not about us it's about what he has done in us he is the reason we proclaim it. Those lights that we hold up sometimes are the ones that can do some of the most damage. There is one true light. His name is Jesus. However, not everybody believes that. Second response to the light. So we testify just like John testified to the light. What was the response of the testimony or the witness to the light? Well, the first one is, many reject the light, verses 9 through 11. There was the true light, which coming into the world, enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. Here John clarifies for us, John the gospel writer, that John the Baptist was not the light. He was not actually the phraseology. He was not that light. But Jesus Christ is the true light. He is the authentic light. He is the original light. John here shows the nature of this light and its function. He's not a replica. He's not a reflection, he's not a false light, but he is the first, he is the authentic, and he is the source of all light. And I, I, I want us to see here what John is beginning to do, and it is the nature of Jesus Christ and what he does that brings us into the reaction of the world. Let me put it to you this way. Real and fake, right? These are, when I do our eBay hobby that we have, and uh, the guys are going to give me a hard time because I know a lot about purses, um, but purses, when we sell purses on eBay, is very important to be able to distinguish between real and fake. So here, this is, there's websites that you're able to do that, you're able to go online, and believe it or not, there are many fakes out there. Are you rolling your eyes, Patrick? You know, little purses? I'm going to buy you, that color matches you, Patrick. 
real and fake person. So the reason why, you, why people, so this kind of speaks to the darkness in people's hearts is the fact that there is a market out there for people who are making fake products in order to fool people to think they're the real ones because the real ones are extremely valuable. This purse right here is an Hermes Birkin. How many people have ever heard of Hermes purse before? Well, I'm going to introduce you to Hermes purses. So the real purse, and this is why people fake people, the real purse, the one in the blue, is worth upwards to $17,000. Matter of fact, Hermes has the record for one of the most expensive purses sold in auction close to the price of a home. It's crazy, isn't it? So now you know why people do this. They want to fake you out to think you have the real deal and that it is valuable. Folks, the way that it is in the material world is the same way it is in the spiritual world. There are many false lights. And the goal of the false light is to make you feel good. Because the goal of the true light is to reveal the reality of our hearts and of this world around us. If you see people, you know, when I can afford a fake Hermes Birkin, right? So if you see, I always can tell where some sort of weird, bad teaching or some sort of bad doctrine or some sort of bad following when a lot of people like it, right? Because it makes us feel good. The reason why the light was not received is because of what the light does. It reveals our true nature. He came into this world, a world he created. They didn't know because they're covered in darkness. He came to his own people and his own people rejected him. You would think that during John's time, how valuable they recognized light was, right? It's not like you can go into a home during this time and flick on a light switch. It just wasn't there. You needed supplies. It was extremely valuable. It was a sign of security. It was a sign of safety. It was welcoming, and it was a sign of life. All of those things physically that light brings are the same things spiritually that Jesus Christ brings. And you would think that during a time period like this where the, where the value of light was so great that they would welcome that light with open arms, but they didn't. They didn't because of what the light does. The true light enlightens man. How many people want to see what's inside their hearts? How many people want to see their dirty laundry hung out to dry? Dallas Willard writes about a a two-and-a-half-year-old girl in the backyard who one day discovered how to make warm chocolate. So what's warm chocolate? Yeah, we all know what warm chocolate is. It's mud. She discovered the secret to making this warm chocolate, and she was all excited about it, right? She was over her Nana's house and showing her Nana, look at the warm chocolate I made, two and a half years old. Nana, she didn't share her enthusiasm. 
she thought it was a mess. And after she cleaned up to her what was that mess, she told little Larissa, no more warm chocolate. And then she turned her chair to face her because, you know, you gave the commands and so now you're going to have to make sure that it is followed through. Do you, how many people think Larissa listened? No, we don't have faith in humanity? Come on. That's right. If you want to learn about total depravity, just have children sometimes. My child is an exception, of course. I'm just kidding. <laughs> so what did Larissa start doing? She started resuming her warm chocolate factory. However, she did pose a request to her Nana, who was now facing her. She said, Nana, don't look at me, okay? Nice, nice, as sweetly as this little girl could pose that request. Three times during the production of this warm chocolate, she would look up and say, Nana, don't look at me, okay? And Nana was a little codependent, and of course she agreed. Willard writes this, The tender soul of this little child shows us how necessary it is that you and I are unobserved in our wrong. Anytime we choose to do wrong or withhold doing right, we choose hiddenness, or I would add, darkness as well. He says, it may be that of all the prayers that are ever spoken, this is the most common one the quietest one, the one that we least acknowledge making, God, don't look at me. He said it was the first prayer ever spoken after the fall. God came into the garden to be with man and woman and called, where are you? Adam said, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid. So what did Adam do? He hid. Frederick Bushner says this, If there is a terror about darkness because we cannot see, there is also a terror about light because we can see. Much because of what we see in the light about ourselves and our world, we would rather not see nor have not been seen. Jesus is going to say it plain and simple later on. Light has come in to this world. The world has loved the darkness. Why? Because their deeds are evil. The true light of man illuminates the reality around us. I see who I am. I see who this world is. I see who Jesus is. Most of this world does not want to face that truth. But folks, I'm here to tell you that that is the only way we can solve the problem of our darkness is that we allow that light to illuminate our hearts and souls and in that light find true life. Jesus came to his own people and they rejected him. They did not receive him. They did not recognize him. The one who created them, the one who led his people out of Egypt, they rejected. 
And he said, no, no thank you. You know, they took this to a very natural conclusion. There are two responses when we don't want light. We hide from it, and many people do. We don't want to talk about religion. We don't want to talk about our sins. We don't want to talk about our problems, our failures. So we hide. We ignore. Or we go to the light, and we turn it off. That is exactly what happens to Jesus Christ. His own family at one point thought he was crazy. Thought he lost his senses. Instead of allowing the light to take hold of them, it says that they tried to take custody of him and pull him out of it. When Jesus told the religious leaders the truth, they wanted to push him off the cliff. They wanted to stone him. And they began from early on plotting to kill him. Why? Because we don't want our deeds revealed. So what do we do? We snuff it out. The one who created this world, the one who created humanity, was hung on a cross by his creation. Christians that are here, if this is what they did to Jesus Christ, who is God Almighty incarnate, what do you think is going to be reaction to those that follow him as we try to bring this light into the world. The majority of the world rejects the light. Jesus later on will say, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. Instead, it hates you. Why? You're not of the world. I've chosen you out of the world. Remember the word that I spoke to you. No servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you as well. John is setting us up for the the ultimate conflict that is to come in this gospel. But also, we are prepared for if this is what happened to Jesus, if this is the testimony of John that was rejected, it is going to be the same for you and I. However, the darkness does not triumph because some receive the light. Verses 12 through 13. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Not all reject the light, and here we sit today as a representative group of those who have received the light and believed in his name. And I kind of want to jump to the end before we dive into the middle here. 
on a comment on how this happens. And this is going to be a theme that John is going to be developing throughout his gospel. And in here we have the idea of a spiritual birth as opposed to a physical birth. So this is how people become children of God. So first John begins, and it really, when he says this, it, he's setting the religious leaders up for what is to come later on. And those who read this know of the huge conflict that takes place between Jesus and the religious leaders from the start of his ministry. He says that those children of God, the true children of God, are not born of blood. They are not born of family lineage. Later on, Jesus is going to get into a discussion with the religious leaders of his time, and he's going to be talking about how they think they are children of Abraham. And he says to them, if you think you are children of Abraham, you would believe in me. And he also, they also come to the conclusion that because they are children of Abraham, family lineage, that they are therefore children of God. Jesus then points out, to who their father truly is, the devil. They didn't like that one bit. Matter of fact, one of the times they wanted to kill him for saying that. That's what made them want to kill him. So, but we can get into this kind of same problem too, where, you know, we believe that if we are born into a Christian family, then we're Christians, right? I get scared sometimes when I, when I talk to people and I ask them, when did you become a Christian? And they say, well, I've been a Christian my whole life. And I'm like, oh, that's amazing because I didn't know you could do that. So they tell me that they were born into a Christian family and therefore making them a child of God. Uh-uh. That is not how it happens, and that is a false assurance. Being born into a Christian family just makes you born into a Christian family. You have Christian parents, and they're able to give you the gospel. However, we see here that to, in order to become a child of God, family lineage does not get you there. It is a false sense of assurance and a false sense of security. And there is this idea, as we're talking about truth and Jesus being the true light, we want to be speaking the truth to individuals and speaking the truth to this world. There is this idea out there that we are all children of God. And I understand the concept behind that because we all are, have been created by God. But here, John distinguishes that we are not all children of God. That God is not our Father in this sense of the word. And we have to understand that this passage speaks to the exclusivity of Jesus Christ. So we're not born into the family of God by being born by Christian parents. We are not, it's not through the will of the flesh, and it is not through the will of man. It is not something that I can will myself into the family of God. It is not my decision to say I am a part of God's family. And when he says the will of man, he's talking about the will of a husband. We don't just decide to have this child, but he is born of God. 
And when we speak about the exclusivity of Jesus Christ, we see how important it is that we understand what John is saying here. There is one way to become a child of God, and that is to receive and believe in the name of Jesus Christ. That is the simple gospel truth, and that is the only way that you and I can become a child of God. And when we think about the terms receive and believe, receive is receiving what? A gift. It is a free gift. It is nothing that we have done. It is nothing that we have earned. Jesus Christ came to earth. He took on flesh. He was a man. He was God. And he died on a cross for our sins. We receive that. We believe in his name. And we become a child of God. There is not some spiritual mountain that we are all climbing up on different sides and we all reach the same point. There are not many ways to God. There is only one way. His name is Jesus Christ. And I know that that is not a very popular notion today. But that is the truth. My job, your job as Christians, is to testify to the uniqueness and exclusivity of Jesus Christ. He is the only one that can give people the right to become God's children. And just as we cannot undo our physical birth, we cannot undo our spiritual birth as well. MacArthur states about this passage, and it shows the dramatic shift that even though the majority of the world's reaction was a negative one, it in no way frustrates God's plan for redemption. Those who acknowledge and accept the Son have the Father. Jesus is going to say this throughout the gospel. We cannot have God as our Father if we do not have Jesus Christ as our brother. That is the only way into God's family. And if we have Jesus Christ as our brother, if we accept Jesus Christ as our Savior, we therefore have God as our Father. Receiving Jesus, John Piper says, means that you welcome him into your life for who he is and what he has done. As a Savior, you welcome his salvation As a leader, you welcome his leadership. As a provider, you welcome his provision. And as a king, you welcome his rule. This is a decision on our part to receive and believe. The two are synonymous. The two go hand in hand. You need to make a decision. It's not an acknowledgement. It is a welcoming him into your life. It's saying, Lord, I'm in darkness. That darkness is my own fault. I have sin. And Jesus, you are the only light that can dispel that darkness. What you have done has paid for my sin. I welcome you. I receive what you have done. And I accept that gift. And you are a child of God. And if you have not done that, I beg you today to do so. 
we have no idea how much time we have left. This is not something that can wait. Not another day, not another minute, not another second. And once you receive and believe, it is official. I like what one guy says, receiving Jesus means taking Jesus into your life for what he is. It doesn't mean some kind of peaceful coexistence with a Christ who makes no claims. As though he can stay in your house as long as he doesn't play his music so loud. But it is this reception of Jesus that brings us into God's home permanently. In 2009, a guy tells a story about getting an email from his wife's youngest brother, John. He says, six or seven years ago, when John and his wife, Lori, were working with a youth group in Nebraska, they met Amanda, teenage girl, the same age as their son, Wesley. Amanda came from a terrible, abusive home and was eventually taken from her parents by the state. She has been part of John and Lori's family ever since. After conferring with their two sons, John and Lori decided to legally adopt Amanda. She's 22 and her new name is now Amanda Foote. When this adoption takes place, she will even get a new birth certificate. John and Lori no longer have two legal heirs. They have three legal heirs. And Amanda has two new brothers. She has no longer any legal claim upon her former parents who disowned her. But they don't have any claim upon her either. He said the process was relatively simple. They'd always thought of Amanda as their daughter for a long time. But if I was asked if anything felt different after that day, John said, Absolutely. When it was official, there was a huge change in Lori and me, sort of like when you see your newborn for the first time. Now, Amanda knew she belonged. She belonged to a family that would never leave her. She knew they were her parents. He says, the beauty of all this made me offer a word of thanks to Jesus who cleared the way so that we can become God's children. God has given each of us a new name. We are His legally. We are His responsibility, and we are co-heirs with Jesus Christ. It is official. We belong to a new family with God as our Father. I'm a father. And I absolutely love and adore my daughter. I often tell her that no matter what happens, no matter what she ever does, she will always be my child. And I will always love her. I'm a human father. Can you imagine what our divine father is capable of? Maybe some of you may not have had a good relationship with your father. 
God is not like that. He is a father who will always be there. He is a father who we can run to when we skin our knees. He is a father who will be with us in the darkness. And he is a father that won't turn us away because we fail. He's a father who will always love us. Later on, Jesus will instruct his disciples to call him the most intimate term for father, daddy. It's not a flippant term, but it's one that signifies who he is to us, how much he loves us, and how we can freely approach him. We are adopted into his family because we believe and receive Jesus Christ. It's official for all eternity. Al Braca as a corporate, worked as a corporate bond trader, and his office was on the 105th floor of Tower One in the World Trade Center. A week after the tower was hit and collapsed, Al's body was found in the rubble. According to his wife, Jeannie, Al absolutely hated his job. He couldn't stand the environment that he worked in. Do you know why? Al was a Christian. However, despite all of that, despite the world that he was in that was completely out of sync with his Christian beliefs and values, he didn't quit. He didn't quit because Al was convinced that God wanted him to stay there to be a light in the darkness. The Brockas later on learned that Al had indeed been ministering to the people during the entire attack. Reports trickled in from friends and acquaintances. Some people on the 105th floor had made some last calls and sent emails to a loved one saying that there was a man who was leading people in prayer. A few referred to Al by name. When Al realized that they were trapped in the building and would not be able to escape, he shared the gospel with a group of 50 co-workers and led them all in prayer. We are to testify to the true light of man so that others may become children of God. John the Baptist was a man. Al was a man. You and I are people like them, and we know that true light. There will come a time when we as God's children will all go home We'll enjoy the luxuries and benefits of that house. We'll enjoy a pain-free, sin-free life for all eternity. Never again will there be darkness, for He will be our light, and we will see our Father face to face. That time is not now. Now is the time to go outside. Now is the time to do what John the Baptist did, 
And to do it, Al did. Not run from the darkness, but bring our light into it. I wonder how many people that Al witnessed to that day left this home and joined their family in their new heavenly one. Father, thank you for this treasure that we have. And Lord, we are jars of clay. And Lord, it is not the vessel that matters. It is who is inside this vessel that does. And we know that it is He who can empower us and strengthen us to testify to the light we have in Him. We pray and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.